the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life Prez, and it's my special privilege to be able to deliver uh, God's Word to you here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we're actually in the middle of a really short series uh, looking at various passages in Scripture that talk about spiritual gifts, and today our passage comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And again, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. Otherwise, uh, it'll also be projected on the screens in front of you. But if I can kindly ask everyone to please uh, rise and stand for the reading of God's Word as an act and sign of reverence and worship toward Him. And I'll read the passage for us. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, this is the Word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who is descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated at this time. Well, brothers and sisters, as we continue this really short mini-series, uh, thinking and talking about spiritual gifts here today, for those of you who uh, weren't with us last week, the past Sunday, Pastor Will actually led us through a different passage on gifts in Romans chapter 12. And if you weren't here, essentially what he showed us in that passage was he showed us how spiritual gifts are related on the one hand to our identity as Christians. In other words, we're called to think soberly about the gifts that you and I have and how that relates to our identity in Jesus. But he also showed us how spiritual gifts are also related to community and various ways in which you and I are called to discern what gifts that we have and then use those gifts to bless and serve the community around us. Now, friends, what I want us to do today as we look at today's passage in Ephesians 4 is I want us to take a slightly different approach. And what I want us to do in our time is just ask and answer two simple questions that Paul addresses in this passage in Ephesians 4 about spiritual gifts. The first question that we'll consider today is, what exactly are spiritual gifts? Now, according to the Bible, especially Ephesians 4, what does the Bible say that spiritual gifts are, and what is the nature of those gifts? And then the second question that we'll consider today together is, what is the goal of spiritual gifts? If God pours out and gives all these gifts to different people in the church, what is the end game or what is the purpose or goal of all these gifts that God pours out? So again, the two things that we'll look at in this passage together are first, what are spiritual gifts? And then secondly, what is, their game, what is their aim or their goal? So let's begin quickly with the first point. What are spiritual gifts? Now, it's really interesting if you look at this passage is, instead of giving this comprehensive list of spiritual gifts like Paul does in other passages such as 1 Corinthians or Romans, what Paul does in Ephesians 4 is he actually just breaks down spiritual gifts into two main categories. The first category that Paul gives us is this. Paul says that spiritual gifts are personal gifts, abilities, or talents that Jesus gives to each individual believer to bless the church or to serve others. That's what spiritual gifts are. Now, where do we see this in the passage? Well, if you read verses 7 and 8 again with me, Paul says in verses 7 and 8, 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, what Paul is doing in these verses is he's actually quoting an Old Testament passage all the way from Psalm 68, verse 18. And if you're not familiar with Psalm 68, 18, or if you've never read Psalm 68 before, essentially what it is, it's, it's basically a song of victory or a song of triumph. You know, the imagery that you have in Psalm 68 is essentially, it's this picture of God as this victorious king returning from battle. He's returning back to Jerusalem after defeating and conquering all these enemy armies and taking all these captors, captives and prisoners from the enemy armies. And essentially what this king is doing is he's marching and parading through the streets of Jerusalem in victory, and he's heading all the way up to the height of Mount Zion, where the temple is, which is essentially it's a metaphor for heaven. And what happens as the king leads this parade all the way through the city of Jerusalem to Mount Zion is, when he gets to the top, he receives a tribute, or he receives gifts from all of his conquered enemies and foes. And what the king then does is he takes those gifts and those spoils of his victory, and then he pours it out upon all of his people. He gives gifts to his people, the spoils of his victory. And friends, what Paul is doing in Ephesians 4 is he applies this picture of God as this ascending, conquering king. He applies that to Jesus and he says, just as Jesus rose from the grave and he ascended from, from the grave and from earth to glory in heaven at the Father's right hand, Jesus not only attained victory over sin and death and your sin for himself, but what Jesus also did when he rose from the grave is he rose in victory and he took all the splendor of his gifts and his victory and he poured that out upon the church upon each and every single individual believer. Now, friends, the question is, what exactly then are those gifts that Jesus gives to you and me, the church, in his victory? What are those gifts? Well, if you read verse 7 again with me, Paul says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, friends, when Paul says that grace was given to you and me in differing measures or degrees according to Christ's gift, he's not talking about the grace that brings you and I salvation because all of us receive the exact same measure of salvation from Jesus when we put our faith in him. But what Paul is actually talking about is a different category of grace that theologians often like to call serving grace. So Paul's not talking about saving grace, but in this passage he's talking about serving grace, which is essentially the grace and the gifts that you and I are all given to serve and bless the church. And friends, what Paul says about serving grace is two things. First, he says that serving grace is something that is given to every single person who is a disciple of Jesus. And what that means for all of us here today, if you are a disciple of Jesus, whether you're a New Life Kids, New Life Youth, whether you're a new Christian, what that means is every single person here, friends, you have a gift that Jesus specifically gave you in his victory over sin and death to use to bless other people with. Many of us, the reality, friends, is you probably, in reality, have a lot of gifts, but all of us, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have at least one spiritual gift probably a lot, that Jesus has given you to bless the church. Now, secondly, what Paul says about serving grace, a serving grace that you and I receive is that it's given in varying or different degrees or measures. In other words, what that means is that both the gifts as well as the level of giftedness that you and I receive, it's given in various degrees, meaning it varies from person to person. That's what Paul says here about serving grace, and that's the first thing that Paul says that spiritual gifts are. It's the serving grace that's given in varying degrees to each believer to bless the church. Now, really quickly, before we move on to the second thing that Paul describes as spiritual gifts in this passage, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about the nature of spiritual gifts, because I think for a lot of us in the church, especially if you've been in the church for a long time, this is still something that's uh, still unclear, I think, to a lot of us about what exactly makes something a spiritual gift. 
Now, see, on the one hand, there are some churches, there's some branches of Christianity that believe that all spiritual gifts, every spiritual gift in the Bible, is a unique gift or ability or talent that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit pours out on you the moment that you become a Christian. In other words, the moment that you're regenerated and you believe in Jesus, that the Spirit pours all these gifts on you and gives you all these things that you didn't have before. Some people believe that. Now, on the other hand, there are other Christians on the opposite end who will say that that's actually not true. All spiritual gifts are just, they're the way that you're born. They're the way that God has wired and created you, and that's what spiritual gifts are. So, for example, if you are a naturally just organized, administrative person who's always on top of things, or if you are a musical virtuoso and music has always just come naturally to you, then those are spiritual gifts that God has just blessed you with in your birth. He's just created and wired you that way with those gifts. Now, friends, while I think there is some merit to both of those views, if we just look at Scripture and also just the way that God has created the church in our experience, neither are actually quite how the Bible describes and depicts spiritual gifts. Because on the one hand, if you read the Bible, the Bible actually never says that spiritual gifts are completely distinct or different from just your natural talents or abilities. But see, on the flip side, the Bible also never says that spiritual gifts are the exact same thing as just your natural talents or your natural gifts or your abilities. And friends, just from personal experience, I think many of us know that this is true. We know that spiritual gifts can't exclusively be these things that we only receive the moment we, we believe in Jesus or receive the Holy Spirit, because I think for a lot of us, very rarely have we seen the case where, for example, you know, you know someone when they were a non-Christian, that person who's super disorganized, their schedule's all over the place, they don't even know how to schedule or have a calendar, and then the moment that they believe in Jesus, all of a sudden that person becomes this type A, detail-oriented organizer and executor. Very rarely, I think, have many of us seen that happen before. I know I have it myself. And if that ever has happened or does happen, I think that's actually the exception and not the norm. Because I think what we see from Scripture and experience is that spiritual gifts at the end of the day, they're related in some way to the way that God has wired and created you. They're related to your natural gifts, talents, and abilities. But see, brothers and sisters, at the same time, spiritual gifts are also much more than just what you're naturally good at what you naturally gravitate towards, or what you're naturally gifted in. Because, friends, at the end of the day, if you look at, I know we're only looking at three passages in this series, but if you look at any of the lists of gifts in the New Testament, in their context, in their context, spiritual gifts are always linked with heart and spiritual character. In other ways, friends, another way to think of this is, in order for a natural gift or a natural talent or ability to be a spiritual gift, it always needs to be accompanied by spiritual holiness and character, and with the right heart. And friends, what that means is, just because you, are, you may be gifted or talented in a specific area in your life, it may not necessarily mean that you're spiritually gifted in that area. Now, for example, we use this example already, but you could be an extremely talented musician. You're amazing at music, playing multiple different instruments. And, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have a spiritual gift in that area, because if you have absolutely no heart or passion for worship music, or for praising God and using your gifts to do that, then that may not necessarily mean that you have a spiritual gift. It may not naturally mean that your natural gift is a spiritual gift because it's not fully developed yet. Your heart and your character aren't there with your natural gift. Now, friends, a lot more could be said, but let's move on. That's the first category that Paul gives us about spiritual gifts. They're serving grace. It's serving grace that's given to each one of us in varying degrees that we're called to use the blessed church with. Now, friends, before we move on to our second point, the second thing that Paul tells us about spiritual gifts is that they're not only specific gifts that God gives to you and me, to believers, to bless people with, 
But spiritual gifts also come in the form of specific people that God gives to the church to bless the church with. And if you read with me verses 11 and 12 again, Paul says this in verses 11 and 12. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Friends, in these verses, what Paul basically does is he actually essentially lays out the framework for how we here at New Life Press understand church, how it functions, and understands ministry. And what Paul says is that spiritual gifts come not only in the form of specific gifts and giftedness, but spiritual gifts also come in the form of people. Mainly, those people are actually the spiritual leaders of the church. And Paul says the reason that God gives gifts these leaders to the church, which today would be the pastors and the elders and the leaders, is not so that they'll do the 100% of the work of ministry, but actually the reason that God gives these people to the church as gifts is so that those people then equip every other member in the church They'll equip them to find, discover, and to use their gifts to do the work of ministry and bless the church. In other words, friends, what this means primarily is that the ones doing the work of ministry in the church primarily is not just the people who are up here on the stage. It's not just the elders and the pastors. But friends, what Paul is saying is that primarily the ones doing the work of ministry is every single person in this room. It's the entire church. Now, friends, depending on your church background or how you grew up, maybe you didn't go to church and you don't have a lot of good perception of what church should be like or is, this can actually be a really big paradigm shift for people. And I think even for people who have been in the church for a long time or maybe you've attended a Presbyterian church for a long time, this is a big shift, especially when it comes to your expectations of what church should be like. What I mean by that is this. You know, maybe I can try and illustrate it this way. And as many of you know, the World Cup uh, started this past week. I know a lot of you have been watching the games uh, religiously. Uh, but what's interesting is, I think a lot of times when it comes to church, people approach church the way that they approach the World Cup. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me try and make my case here. You know, when you're watching a soccer game or you're watching the World Cup, what do you do? You support your team, don't you? You wake up early if you need to. You root and you cheer. You get excited every time they score a goal. They're about to score a goal. You might support your team even financially. You might buy their merchandise. You might buy their jerseys. But friends, in your wildest dreams, you would never actually expect to be asked to actually ever do anything for the team that you support, would you? You'd never even expect that in your wildest dreams. See, on the flip side, though, when you join a sports team, or I know a lot of your kids do sports, when your child joins a sports team, you approach that, let's say it's soccer, you approach that with an entirely different set of expectations, don't you? An entirely different mindset. Now, for example, you expect and you know for yourself that you're going to be asked to sacrifice a lot of your time, a lot of money, a lot of resources to this thing. You know that you're going to be expected to be an active contributor to the team, or your child is going to be expected of that. And the thing is, you know your coach's job is not to practice for you, to do the work, or play the game for you, but your coach is there to help support, train, and develop you or your child as a player. But see, friends, I think the ironic thing is, a lot of times when it comes to church, you have that mindset in your life, but you don't bring that mindset into church. Instead, when a lot of us approach church, we approach it more with a World Cup mindset. What that means is, friends, you want to support the church. You want to be a part of the church and what it's doing. But see, the thing is, you want to approach it from the perspective of a spectator, not a player. You know, you don't expect to be on the field. You don't want to be asked to go out there, but you want to watch the game. You want to be part of the action kind of from afar or at your own comfort or convenience. And friends, what Paul says here in this passage is that when it comes to the church, 
Every disciple of Jesus has been given gifts. You've been given gifts and gifted by Christ, not to be just a spectator, but you've been gifted to be a player. You've been called to be a part of the body of Christ. And friends, the reason that God gifted the church not just with personal gifts to you, but gifts in the form of elders and pastors is so that they can help equip you and develop you to find and discover your gifts and use them to serve the body. And so friends, the question here today is, you know, what is your mindset when it comes to church? Even for myself as a pastor, I'll be honest, I struggle with this sometimes as well. What is your mindset in church? Do you primarily see yourself as someone who's supposed to be a spectator? Or do you primarily see yourself as someone who's supposed to be a player on the field? Now, friends, I get it. For a lot of us, and this is true, there are times in church where you are called to just be an observer, to receive and be blessed and be a spectator. All of us have that. But friends, what do you primarily see yourself as? In other words, are you coming here with the expectation that I'm here as a spectator to be a part of this thing here and to receive? Or primarily, do you see yourself as, I'm coming here to church to be a part of the body, to be a player on the field, and to use my gifts to serve other people? Which one do you see yourself as primarily? Friends, do you know what your gifts are, the ways that Christ has gifted you? Friends, are you using those gifts to bless and serve people around you? And this leads us to our second point. Now, spiritual gifts are both these personal gifts that Jesus has given to every single believer, but they're also gifts in the form of people that train and equip believers to do the work of ministry. Then the question is, what is the goal or purpose of all these gifts that God gives to the church? Well, friends, if you read verse 13 again with me, Paul says in verse 13 that this is essentially the goal of all the gifts that God gives to the church. And he says the goal in verse 13 is, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now friends, what Paul does here is as he shifts gears from talking about the nature of spiritual gifts to talking about the purpose of him, purpose of them, what Paul says is the goal of every spiritual gift at the end of the day in the church is maturity. That's the end game here. That's the goal. To grow and to build up the church until it becomes, as Paul says, one mature body or one mature person, as he says. And what Paul does in the rest of this passage is he describes in two separate ways, two different ways, what this maturity in the church is supposed to look like. And the first thing that Paul says and explains to us is actually, what does maturity actually not look like? In other words, what are signs of an immature church, a church that's not using their gifts to build up the body in the ways that they're called to? If you look at verse 14 again with me, Paul explains what spiritual immaturity looks like in verse 14. And he says there, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Now, Paul essentially uses two metaphors to describe what immaturity looks like in the church. And what he basically says is that an immature person is either like a child or they're like this tiny little boat that's on the sea that's being tossed back and forth by every single wave that comes up. In other words, what Paul says is that an immature person is someone who is never quite settled in their life, in their faith or their convictions. In other words, an immature person is someone who's unstable, who's always vacillating back and forth, or they're always being driven by just the latest information or trend that's going on in their life or the culture around them. That's the picture of what Paul says is an immature person. But friends, on top of that, I think Paul is also trying to point out that another sign of spiritual immaturity in the church could also be this heightened sense of individualism. Well, where do we see that in the passage? You know, if you look closely at verses 13 and 14, 
Paul actually draws this really strong contrast in verses 13 and 14 between, on the one hand, this corporate nature of the church in being one body, and on the other hand, individualism. Now, for example, he says in verse 13, what maturity looks like, a maturity looks like one united grown person or one united grown adult, singular, that builds itself up in love. And then in verse 14, what Paul says is what immaturity looks like is a group of individual children, plural, that are tossed back and forth by the ways they just think and operate on their own. Now, do you see the contrast here? Maturity is about the body as a whole, and immaturity is all about the individual, individual children. And friends, specifically, I think when it comes to the context of gifts, you know, one sign of immaturity in the church may be just this heightened sense of individualism. In other words, it's this mindset where you always ask yourself the questions, you know, am I being served here? Am I growing? Am I being fed? Are other people serving me or ministries that me or my kids are involved in? Am I being asked to use my gifts? Are people even noticing my gifts? Or why aren't I asked to be doing certain things or being a leader in this position? And never considering or asking the question, are other people around me growing? Are they being served? Are they growing? And if they're not, how can I help them grow? Or how can I grow together with the other people around me and serve them? And friends, that's the picture of what Paul says immaturity is like in the church. It's the sense of, on the one hand, spiritual instability, but on the other hand, this heightened sense of individualism where everything at the end of the day is about you and your experience and your gifts. Now, friends, the second thing that Paul does in this passage as we come to a close slowly is Paul describes in the very rest of this passage what maturity is supposed to look like in the church. And what he says in verse 15 is this. Paul says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, friends, Paul says that one of the ways that you, can, you and I can tell if we're using our gifts and we're building up the body of Christ with those gifts is not only in the way that we serve and use our gifts, but it's actually in the way that you and I use our tongues, how we speak and how we talk to each other. Now, friends, I know that this is a phrase that is thrown out a lot in the church or just in Christianity. You've got to speak the truth in love or you've got to be more loving with your words. But what does this actually mean? You know, this is thrown out so often. What, what does this actually look like practically? Well, brothers and sisters, it's actually really simple but difficult. Now, if you break this down simply, speaking the truth in love, it essentially means this. You know, speaking the truth addresses the content of what you and I say to people, the actual words, the information that we communicate, the truth we communicate, meaning that we're called to stand for the truth, the truth of God's word and who he is. It means at times you're going to have to confront people or rebuke them because of their incorrect worldviews or because of their sins or their blind spots. But on the flip side, speaking in love, it doesn't address the content of what you say, but speaking in love addresses the way or the manner or the motivation behind the words you and I say to people. In other words, it means that we're called to communicate in a way that's gentle, gracious, and other-centered, not self-centered. Now, friends, the problem for you and I is I think almost every person in this room, you probably immediately know which side you struggle with more. In other words, many of us here, we tend to lean towards one extreme or the other, don't we? You tend to either speak too much truth or you focus too much on love. Now, for example, now some of us here, we focus too much on love. I know I myself am in this camp. I struggle with this. But friends, the thing is, for people who struggle with focusing overly too much on, truth, on love, is the problem is, you tend to want to either avoid hard conversations. You never want to say something that kind of brings people down or is discouraging or hurtful. 
and you tend to shy away from speaking the truth when it's needed the most. That's a struggle. But friends, and I'm speaking to myself here as well, the challenge for this, the, the rebuke and the challenge is this. For people who struggle overly with speaking in love, the reality is people who struggle with focusing overly too much on love is that those people's words are actually the least loving of all. Why? Because the tendency for those people is they will either ignore or they'll tolerate people's wrong worldviews or sins or their flaws to the point where they don't care enough about the person. They don't actually love the other person enough, whether it's your spouse or your kids or someone in the church, to actually confront them about it. Because if you actually care about someone's sanctification, friends, you're going to say something. But friends, saying nothing is actually one of the most unloving things you can do, even though you think you're loving that person because, oh, I'm not stepping on their toes or I'm not saying anything harmful to them. But see, friends, on the flip side, on the other hand, some of us are the opposite. You don't struggle so much with wanting to say things in love and being loving with your words, but you focus so much on just only speaking the truth. It's all about logic. It's all about what's right, and you just say it because that's the truth straight. And the problem is there's little to no love in your words. And the reality is, friends, if you struggle with that, a lot of times, if you're honest, even though you're speaking the truth to someone else, you're speaking truths, things that are true, the truths that you're speaking, they're coming from a place of either frustration, anger, or just from a critical heart or a critical spirit. Now, Tim Keller in his book, Meaning of Marriage, in a chapter about communication, he, he once said it this way, he said that, you know, when you have love without truth, all that essentially is, is it's sentimentality. In other words, it, it supports and affirms you, but it keeps you in denial about all of your flaws and your sins. Now, on the other hand, when you have truth, but you don't have any love, all that is is harshness because it's giving you information, things that's true, things that are true, but in a way that the other person can't really accept it, they can't process it, and they can't really hear it in the moment. And friends, what he's saying, and I think what Paul is saying, is that as Christians, you and I are called to care about truth. At the end of the day, we build our lives around the truth of Scripture, of what God says about us and the world around us. At the same time, we're called to love people just as Jesus loved us and loved other people. But friends, the problem is, and the challenge is, we're called to do both in equal proportion. Which means, friends, if you really love someone in your life, again, if it's a family member or your child, a friend, someone here in this church, if you really love them, at the end of the day, it means you love them enough to say whatever you need to say to that person, to speak truth into their life about their brokenness, about their sin, to speak hard truths and admonish them at times. But friends, at the same time, if you really care about God's truth and living by the truth, well, then it means that you'll communicate the truth in a way that honors God and edifies and builds up other people. Because, brothers and sisters, speaking the truth in love, it's actually one of the most loving things that you can do, saying a hard truth to someone. But, friends, it can also be one of the most discouraging and damaging and destructive things you can do if it's not done in love. But, friends, what Paul says in this passage is when it is done in love, he says that that's a clear sign that a church is mature and really flourishing when they use their, not only their gifts, but they use their tongues and their speech to build up the church in love. And so, friends, the question for us here today is, you know, as we come to a close, as you think about your own speech, not just your gifts and how you're serving, but if you think just about your own speech, the words that you've been saying recently, what effect have your words been having on the people around you? Now, this is something that a lot of us don't think about a lot of times. You just say words, don't you? They just come out. But you never think about how they're affecting people. What effect 
have your words been having on people around you? The way you talk to your kids? If your children, the way that you probably talk back to your parents? Maybe it's your peers, your friends. Maybe it's other people here in this church or just people you're really comfortable with. What effect have those words been having? Have they been building people up in love? Even if the words you're speaking are filled with hard truths? Or have your words been just bringing people down or enabling them to continue living in sin? No, have your words been keeping people in denial about their sins and their flaws and their brokenness? Or have your words been shedding the light of the gospel into people's brokenness and their flaws? Brothers and sisters, as we come to a close, you know, the truth is, when it comes to using our gifts, using our tongues, you know, the truth and reality is, not only for us as individuals, but even as we think about our church as one body, as a whole, we still have a long way to go. We're still a big work in progress because both individually and corporately as a church, you know, there, we still, at a lot of times, we show flashes of immaturity, spiritual instability, this hyper-individualism, self-centeredness, and friends, the honest truth is we don't always speak the truth, and if you've been in our church for any amount of time, you probably know that we don't always love one another. But friends, the good news is that the person who was our head and the person who unites us, that he never fails to do so. Because friends, the truth is that Jesus is the one person in this entire world who will never shy away from speaking truth into your life, the hardest truths. Friends, at the same time, he's the one person who will never stop loving you. The gospel is the one message, friends, that will tell you the truth about how broken and sinful and messed up and flawed you really are in ways that no one else may know about. But friends, it's the one message that at the same time will speak to you about the unconditional love and grace that Jesus has poured out for you, undeserving. Friends, the gospel tells us that Jesus is the king who was in heaven but descended from heaven to earth to fight our battle and war against our own sin and rebellion and who died in, that, in doing that. He rose again, he ascended in victory, and in his victory, he poured out the spoils and the blessings of that victory to you and me in the form of gifts. Gifts that were called to use to bless his people and to mature the church. And friends, what that means is every single time you use your gift, whatever your gifts may be, to serve the church, no matter what your gift may be, maybe it's serving in food ministry or just welcoming people or ushering people, maybe it's physical labor or being a part of the service here, whatever your gift may be, friends, every time you use your gift, and every time you build up the church by speaking the truth in love, what you're doing is you are witnessing to Jesus' victory over death and over your sin. You're witnessing directly to that because you're using the exact gift that he has given you and shared and distributed to you out of his victory. And so, brothers and sisters, I pray as we seek and continue to love one another in the church, to use our gifts, our abilities, and our tongues to mature the body of Christ here, as we continue to consider what it means to be called to Jesus, but also called to serve one another, I pray that we would do so with our eyes and our hearts, first and foremost fixed on this victorious picture of Jesus as our King, who is the perfect balance of truth and love, the perfect balance of law and grace, and who descended and ascended for us to make us part of his body, so that we would build one another up in love. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for the saving grace that we have in Jesus, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that Jesus took the penalty of our sins. He rose again in victory, and he called us his own. 
Lord, we thank you not only for the saving grace that you've given us, but also, Lord, also the serving grace and the gifts that you've given us. We pray that as a church, Lord, you would help us to think correctly about just our perspective when it comes to church, that we're all called to be part of your body here, active members of your body, and not dormant parts, Lord, but actively blessing one another through our gifts and through service, the way that we speak to one another. Lord, we know that there are many aspects of our lives and our gifts and our tongues that are flawed and still full of sin. But Lord, we pray that you would still use these things ultimately to build up your body here, that we may encourage and edify one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for your grace, and we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.